Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Jason Samenow, weather editor for The Washington Post, and one of the head honchos of The Post's Capital Weather Gang. Jason attended the University of Virginia, where he earned a degree in environmental science with a focus on atmospheric science. He then went on to earn a master's degree in atmospheric science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before joining the Post, Jason worked for a decade as a climate change analyst for the federal government, monitoring, analyzing, and communicating the science of climate change. I'm not going to lie, the Capital Weather Gang are basically celebrities to those of us who live in the D.C. area. They are tremendously informative, educational, witty, and timely in their analysis and information. They also have a really killer Twitter feed. And I I really couldn't be more pleased to be talking with Jason today about the intersection of climate change and weather, with a particular focus on how today's weather people communicate to the public about climate change in a scientifically rigorous way. Honestly, I'm probably going to fangirl a little bit along the way too, so get ready. (laughs) Stay with us. Jason, it is very exciting to welcome you to the show, and I really am so grateful that you were able to join me. Thanks so much for having me today, Kristen. So again, I imagine you need little to no introduction for many of our DC-based listeners, uh, but for those who are farther afield, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and, and how you ended up where you are today? Sure. So um, as you mentioned uh, in your very kind introduction, I've been interested in weather since I was very young, starting at around the age of 10. And I knew at that time that I wanted to pursue a career in meteorology, no doubt about it. And um So I went ahead and I went to the University of Virginia, where I focused in environmental science and atmospheric science. And um, then I went to graduate school at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And again, at Madison, I focused both on meteorology and on climate change. And when I graduated, I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go in, whether I wanted to focus more in uh, traditional weather forecasting or do more um, climate change work. And... um, it turned out that I uh, applied for a job at the EPA um, as a climate change science analyst, and uh, and they made me an offer. And uh, being from Washington, the lore of staying in Washington near friends and family was um, quite appealing, so I decided to take that EPA job. But I wanted to stay active in weather forecasting. And so for that reason, um, while I was at EPA, as a side hustle, so to speak, I started a website called CapitalWeather.com, which was a D.C. area weather portal, um, which I basically at first just shared with friends and family. Um, I would post weather discussions on there when there were big storms coming up. Uh, But over time, I I decided that, you know, this could evolve into something bigger. And uh, at the time, blogs were becoming a big thing. And I thought, well, you know, weather would be a great topic for a blog because a blog is a two-way conversation where you're posting information and then you're having readers react, uh, share comments and so forth. And historically, weather information was more of a one-way conversation. You would um, watch the weather on the news. You would read about weather in in the newspaper. And I felt like blogs had a really great potential to make weather more of a conversation. And when you think about it, weather is one of the top conversational topics in society. We all love to talk about weather, small talk or or, or more substantively. But anyways, um, so with the help of uh, several contributors, contacts I had at the time, 
um, we converted capitalweather.com into a blog style website where we would post forecasts each day and encourage our readers to um, to comment, share storm stories, um, share their observations of the weather. And it started to take off. Um, and this was through a lot of hard work, but uh, we built an audience. We asked other blogs to link to us. We got noticed by Washingtonian Magazine that who featured us as uh, one of the best blogs in D.C. And the Washington Post eventually noticed us as well. And uh, in 2007, reached out to us and asked us if we wanted to basically become their weather team. And of course, very eager for more exposure, we couldn't turn down that offer. So um, we entered a deal with the Post to um, to blog for them starting in 2008. And that was a um, originally set up as a three-year deal. And uh, when that three-year deal ended, it was kind of at a crossroads. This was in 2010. Um, you know, would I continue to do this while well, I had a very busy career at the EPA? And honestly, it was a lot of work having a full-time day job and also a very successful side venture with The Post. And um, The Post decided to offer me a full-time job um, with them so we could keep this going and build on it. And so I uh, left the security of an excellent government job in a place I loved working to um, do Capital Weather Gang full-time at The Post. And so um I've done that since 2010. I've been at the Post for uh, 12 years, almost 12 years now, and it's been a great ride. That is fantastic. I will say you mentioned the kind of two-way conversation piece of this and how that's something you were trying to encourage. I find that in general, comment sections on news sites are sort of rough. <laughs> you know, It's not the most welcoming part of the news experience. The comments on the Capital Weather Gang site are just as joyous as the reporting itself. You really, It's really a wonderful community. And so it's clear that that part of the mission has kind of kept going as it's gone to the post. Um, well, that's great. Thank you for that background. And so, yeah, so with that, um, and it's really wonderful to have someone who really does kind of straddle both the worlds of climate and weather. And that's really the focus of our conversation today. So um, obviously, I, I guess I would characterize it as climate and weather are are closely linked, but they are not the same. And so maybe we can start with kind of a foundational question of, of how you would characterize the relationship between climate and weather. Sure. So climate is basically just the average of all weather. And uh, there are a couple of good sayings or metaphors which help kind of um, help people better understand the differences between the two. Um, one of them, this saying is, you know, climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. Again, sort of linking to that idea that, uh, you know, climate is the average of all weather. And then here's a metaphor, which uh, Marshall Shepard, who's a professor of atmospheric sciences at University of Georgia, is uh, fond of. And I believe he may have come up with this. And he says, climate is your personality, weather is your mood. So again, um, you know, what you generally expect is kind of what climate gives you, but what you get at any given time is the weather. And so the weather is very changeable. Um, you know, you might live in a hot climate, but you get cold weather. You might live in a cold climate and get um, hot weather. So, but basically when you average it all together, um, that's what climate defines. And then what's happening at any given point in time, that's the weather, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful distinction and it definitely gets at some of the I'm sure that gets at some of the challenges that we'll talk about, about communicating about those differences too. But yeah, another kind of baseline question for you. So you've obviously been a weather aficionado for, you know, for quite some time and have been engaged in both climate communication and weather reporting for, you know, decades of an entire professional career. I'm sorry, I don't mean to make you sound <laughs> old. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, it's a wonderful and extensive career doing both of these things. So I guess I wanted to ask, can you can you say a little bit about kind of how the field of meteorology, if I can ask you to speak for the field, has approached talking to, about climate change over the years? You know, is it something that you talked about from the outset or has it really and how has it changed? Yeah, no, it's undergone a lot of change in uh, especially the last five to 10 years. If you go back to, say, you know, between 2000 and 2010, meteorologists didn't really talk about climate change much at all. Um, I think there was uh, there were a couple of things going on there. Number one, um, there was some skepticism among meteorologists about um how big of an effect climate change was having on the weather and also how big of an effect human activities were having on the weather and the climate overall. And, um, you know, a decade ago, there was a considerable contingent of meteorologists who just weren't convinced yet that uh, climate change was profoundly impacting the weather. And I think that has changed a lot in the last 10 years as we've seen, um, as some of our weather statistics have uh, been skewed toward more and more records, whether it's uh, extreme precipitation events, whether it's heat waves, the data has just become a lot more compelling that something is fundamentally changing about our background weather conditions. And I think as meteorologists have seen that, they've become more open to the fact that talking about it and also um, more convinced themselves that this is really happening, that you know, climate change is in fact um, influencing our weather on a day-to-day basis. Um, and of course, there have been really important efforts um, by some nonprofit organizations to help meteorologists better understand climate change, uh, organizations like Climate Central, um, who started a Climate Matters program to educate broadcast meteorologists about climate change and also to make resources and information available so those meteorologists could talk to their viewers about the changes which have been ongoing. And there has been research which has shown that the work that broadcast meteorologists have done have actually changed the attitudes of some of their audiences. So uh, Climate Central should really be applauded for that work. Um, So absolutely, I think especially in the last five years when we've seen, you know, overwhelming um, evidence with, you know, record highs, vastly outnumbering record lows with these extreme precipitation events becoming more frequent. I think it's become really clear to broadcast meteorologists in the meteorology profession overall that uh, things are changing in a really serious way. And so they can't really tell a weather story responsibly without putting it in a climate change context. You're not telling the whole story if there is a extreme heat event of a magnitude of which we've never seen before. Um, if you don't talk about the past and you don't talk about how different this is from what we've seen in the historical record and, and you have to connect the dots. If you don't do that, you're not being a, you're, you're not being a responsible journalist and telling the whole story. And I actually, you know, about maybe five or six years ago, I actually wrote an op-ed perspective on the Capital Weather Gang, basically saying that, saying that if you're a meteorologist and you're not putting um, current weather records and current weather events in historical context and discussing um, how um, these events connect to climate change and understanding the peer-reviewed literature, I think um, you're doing a disservice to your audience. And so I I wrote that. Um, And I think another big advance in the field has been these attribution studies, which have been done, which um, help 
um, scientists and journalists better understand um, the effect that climate change is having on these uh, ex- extreme weather events and how climate change is making these extreme weather events so many more times likely. And, you know, within a few weeks of any major weather event happening, these reports coming out from the Worldwide Attribution Project, which um, quantitatively tell us how much of an effect climate change is having. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, I have about 1 million follow-up questions for you. Um, so I'm going to try to going to try to rein them in here. But so I, I want to follow up a little bit on that question of extreme weather events. And, um, you know, I even in the time that you've been at the Capitol Weather Gang with the Post, I can think of a number of really intense moments in DC weather history that have happened in this decade, right? There's been Snowmageddon and Snowpocalypse. There was the derecho. There was Superstorm Sandy, you know, these kind of large scale, really extreme, um, out of the ordinary weather events. And you guys are not just looking at DC, but you're really covering weather around the globe. So so I want to just dive into that a little bit. You know, many of us have had either lived but anecdotal or sort of an intuitive sense that the weather's been getting more extreme. But you guys, it's your job to really look at the underlying data and understand from a more scientific lens what the trajectory of that extreme weather looks like. So what can you tell us about kind of what you, as someone who studies this for a living, has seen about the trajectory of extreme weather events? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy, but especially in the last decade and the last five years in particular, we've just seen an acceleration um, in the uh, in the warming and in the number of these extreme weather events that we're covering. Um, it just seems like more and more records are being broken. And, you know, here in the D.C. area, I can think of um, a laundry list of various um, temperature records we've set in the last decade, the last decade being our warmest on record. We've had, we've had seven of our 12 hottest months on record. We've had most of our warmest years on record. Um, we've had m- many of our hottest days on record. We've had some of our hottest days so early in the year and so late in the year. And I, I actually keep a list of this and it's like, you know, they're like 30 bullet points with all of these various uh, heat weather extremes that we've established just in the last decade. And so they continue to pile up. And it's not just the heat, it's also the heavy precipitation events. You know, we think about the two Ellicott City floods. I think those were uh, in uh, 2016 and 2018. You had two 500-year flood events in basically three summers. And uh, then in July 2019, D.C. had its heaviest downpour in recorded history in which three to four inches of rain fell in a single hour. And you saw similar events like that in New York City last year with Hurricane Ida when their flood systems were overwhelmed, when they saw about that amount of rain in in just a a short amount of time. And it was not only severe flooding, but lives were lost. So that was a severe event there. So it's happening not just in the D.C. area, but all over the country, really, um, in terms of these uh, more extreme precipitation events. And of course, even this summer with the heat waves, you know, we've been covering a lot in recent days, the extreme heat in Texas. Uh, you know, they're having one of their hottest summers on record. Uh, you know, Houston had its hottest July day on Sunday. It was 105. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're covering it everywhere. And it just seems like, um, you know, my job has gotten busier and busier in recent years just because there are more extreme events happening. And of course, you know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, they've tracked this uptick in billion dollar weather disasters. And last year, I think was the second busiest year on record for those. So those costs are escalating. And, you know, obviously, it's not all climate change. Some of the uh, increase in costs of extreme weather events is due to the fact that, um 
there's a growing population and there's more infrastructure, there's more property in harm's way, especially with all the building along the coasts and the impacts that hurricanes have. But you know, climate change is, is in there too, because these events are becoming more intense. And of course, there have been attribution studies which showed events like Hurricane Harvey uh, produced a lot more rain than they would have uh, had it not been for the uh, warming temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, we're concerned about hurricane season this year because the water temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico and parts of the Atlantic are so warm. So, um, you know, it, it's just relentless in terms of um, the trajectory we're headed on and what we've already seen just in the past five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is another great lead in to a question that I wanted to ask you about about research and um, what areas of research are sort of most impactful for you as a meteorologist. And I guess I'll I'll put this in context by, by saying that, you know, when I was growing up, my impression of a weather person was basically some combination of Al Roker and Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. And so not a super sort of academically rigorous picture, no offense to either one of those wonderful humans, but, um, you know, I was, I was just less aware, let me put it that way, of meteorology's kind of academic underpinnings. And so I think I wanted to ask, you know, what, what fields of research would you say are most impactful, most important for your line of work? Um, or maybe to phrase it another way, you know, how much do meteorologists really need a grounding in climate science these days to be able to effectively do their jobs? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, I should link back to the question you asked me earlier about how viewpoints among meteorologists have changed about climate change. And I think, you know, a decade or two ago, some of the more veteran meteorologists in the field, especially on television, um, may not have had much of a climate change education because when they were in college, you know, climate change was barely an emerging issue and we didn't have a strong understanding of it at that time. So their skepticism may have been as much about a lack of awareness and education as anything. Um, but the younger meteorologists, those who were uh, trained, you know, in the last one to two decades, um, their training has included climatology and their professors are well educated in climate science. Some of them are publishing the research on climate science. So um, a lot of the younger meteorologists are much more open to talking about climate change and are much more informed about the research because the field has just advanced a lot in the, in the past few decades. And so that's why I think you're seeing an increasing number of meteorologists who were previously reluctant to talk about climate change on air, whether it was because of their lack of education or their personal attitudes about it, that's changed. And so um, as public attitudes about climate change has changed and our understanding has evolved. Um, in terms of um, the areas of research which are really helpful for today's meteorologists, I mean, it, it cuts across the spectrum from severe weather research, uh, better understanding of you know, tornadoes, severe thunderstorms, uh, heavy precipitation events and snowstorms. And this work is all being done at universities across the country to the climate change research and that, and what I spoke about earlier, the attribution research, which helps connect the dots between climate change and extreme weather. And that's a whole emerging area of um, academic research. And there are studies which come out on that all the time. And that's uh, been of tremendous value for those of us who do try to connect the dots and make that part of our reporting and uh, are helping to educate the public about it so that they can better understand whether through the lens of our, our changing climate. So, um, 
Yeah, so absolutely, there's there's tremendous advances being made. There's uh, important work being done, and this is a growing area. Um, but it, it, we need it all, and um, and it's trem- and it's incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we've talked about a number of things that make your job easier. Uh, maybe I can ask you for a second about what you still find to be the most kind of difficult reporting challenges to navigate when you're talking about the relationship of weather to climate is it or to climate change i guess i should say is it some of these kind of big picture relationships is it really um, making sure that you're being accurate when it comes to attribution what what do you still struggle with yeah i mean obviously you know with uh in climate change and extreme weather there is some nuance and you know it, there are some weather events or or, or many of weather events that you know, even without climate change would have been extreme. I mean, you know, we, we had severe weather, we had extreme weather, you know, well before, you know, greenhouse gases uh, in the atmosphere and increased 50%. If you look at, you know, the early part of the climate record in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were severe hurricanes back then, there were heat waves in the Dust Bowl, which were severe. So, um, So I think, you know, there's maybe this tendency for, our audiences to think that, oh, humans have, you know, we're, we're, we're causing everything. And that's not really the case. It's a, a good analogy I've heard is that, you know, it's kind of like the uh, steroid era in baseball, you know, where, um, you know, the home run numbers were inflated. Um, and, you know, there were all these new records being set, you know, with Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa. Um but it's not like sluggers weren't hitting home runs before that, you know, Mickey Mantle and uh, Roger Maris and, 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 and players like that. So, um, but the numbers got supercharged because people were taking these performance enhancing drugs and basically by adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, we're basically um, juicing the atmosphere um, or, or basically injecting the atmosphere with more fuel to make heat waves more intense, to make heavy precipitation events uh, more extreme. And so, um, yeah, so you have to, you have to use metaphors like that and try to educate people to say that, look, these events are natural, but we're making them worse. Um, it's not to say climate change causes extreme weather, but it enhances that. And so, um, you know, we need to do a good job explaining that. And also, I mean, I think, you know, there's some events which are, um, more clearly, linked to climate change, at least their intensity, and there's some which are not. And I think sometimes it's a challenge to um, uh, differentiate between those which have a stronger climate change link versus those which are not. We look at tornadoes sometimes, for example, and tornadoes are one of the thornier issues because um, the understanding on how climate change may or may not be influencing tornadoes is 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 hard to understand. And there's a lot of nuance there. So um, you have to go into a great deal of detail to try to uh, explain that. And so um, that challenges you as a journalist. I think the more complicated the issue is um, and the less sort of cut and dry the answers are, um, the more you have to, um, you know, try hard to be clear. And and it's hard to sometimes convey these messages on Twitter where you're limited to, you know, 240 characters or in a headline. And sometimes people don't read past the headline or they'll only see your tweet. They won't dive down and read the fine print. So um, I think your job as a journalist is to try to draw people in and get them to keep reading and engage them in the topic so they want to learn more. So um, yeah, so those are some of the types of challenges we deal with. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to for just a second to my my introduction where I said that 
you guys are basically celebrities to those of us who live in the D.C. area. Um, I stand by that 100%. And to illustrate my point, I will note that when we were kind of looking for a bio for you, our wonderful editor Elizabeth found a picture of a young man, a boy who had dressed up as you for Halloween and was so excited at the idea of being a Jason Samina when he grew up. Uh, So I want to ask in that vein of someone who is you know, kind of a role model for budding meteorologists. Um, What advice would you have for those young kids out there, the 10-year-olds of this generation, who want to think about becoming meteorologists and reporting on the weather, but want to do that with a kind of a scientifically rigorous attitude? That's a great question. And it's funny because my my own son, who's 11 years old, um, for better or for worse, has gotten the weather bug. And he's actually more into weather than even I was at the same age. It's just kind of crazy. So I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree there. But <laughs> um, anyways, no, I mean, I think like if you're interested in weather at a young age, it's great. Obviously, it's um, it can be a very rewarding hobby if you choose it to be that, or it can be a rewarding career if you want to take it that far. But uh, for anyone who's seriously interested in the issue, um you know, learning as much as you can at a young age, obviously, will put you at a great advantage in terms of um, being ahead of the pack once you get into your courses in high school and college. Um, you've got to be strong in math and science to do well in uh, meteorology because it's steeped in in, in the hard math and, and, and physics. So you've got to be at least competent in those subjects. You don't have to be a star, but you've got to be able to get through the math and through the science. So do well in math and science. And um, obviously, if you want to go into the communication side of things, um, the ability to write and write well is really important. And if you want to go on TV, the ability to speak well and to present yourself well um, is really important. But um, yeah, I think reading books, there are tons of resources available now. Uh, for um, young weather enthusiasts and older weather enthusiasts. There are um, even weather camps you can go to. I think Penn State um, offers a summer weather camp for uh, weather enthusiasts in in, um, junior high and maybe high school or middle school age. And um, also, um, I would just say, you know, there there are tons of resources online and you can actually learn how to analyze the weather models online. there are websites and great resources out there for educating yourself. And then when you get into college, you want to make the most of it. Um, you know, take good classes, um, engage yourself in possible opportunities, whether that's volunteering for a professor to help them with their research or, um, you know, getting involved in internships. So there are any number of things you can do. But um, I think if you're interested in writing and communicating, you know, getting engaged in social media at a young age is uh, really important and just learning from others and um, uh, paying attention to um, professionals who are, are doing a great job and learning from them and following uh, their lead. So, I mean, I think those are a number of things you can do to uh, set yourself up uh, to either be a weather professional or a, um, a uh, lifelong weather enthusiast or hobbyist. Awesome. I'm going to end on a total host prerogative kind of question where I'm just going to ask you to geek out on cool weather phenomena for just a minute. So before we really close with our regular feature, I wanted to ask, what is the coolest weather phenomenon that you have ever had the pleasure of covering? It's a great question. And, you know, having you know been involved in weather reporting for basically um, almost two decades now, I've kind of covered it all. Um, you know, every type of extreme weather, um, cool clouds, um, 
but I'm going to go back to a personal story in a second. But, um, you know, so it's some, some of the clouds, which are really cool that I love to write about are lenticular clouds. They're flying saucer-shaped clouds, which form over mountains. And they're the mamatis clouds, which form in the wake of severe storms, are these pouchy, bulbous-shaped clouds, which are awesome to see, especially sort of in the uh, sunset sky. And uh, there are also clouds called Kelvin Helmholtz clouds, which are like wave-shaped clouds, which kind of look like a, an ocean wave crashing over the sky. Those are really cool. But in terms of the coolest weather phenomenon I've had the pleasure of covering, and I, just because, you know, what got me into meteorology to begin with was my love of snowstorms. And so I think for me, it would have to be um, the extreme snowmageddon winter of, of 2010 here in DC. And that's what really put Capital Weather Gang on the map. But But when I think about what made it so amazing to me was that um, it was February 2010, and we'd had the first of two blockbuster snowstorms. The first was Snowmageddon, and I think that was something like February 4th and 5th. And then just, you know, three, four days later, we had uh, a second blizzard, um, which the Capital Weather Gang called Snowverkill. Um, and, um, but what, what was incredible to me about that storm was um, I remember going outside, we were basically winding up coverage of it, um, on Capital Weather Gang. And I just decided I need to get out in this to experience it for myself, because these were the most extreme conditions I'd ever seen in Washington, DC. Um, we had about like 35 to 40 inches of snow on the ground. There was zero visibility. Um, the snow was drifted up as much as like five, six, seven feet high. It was like a totally foreign landscape. And so I remember just walking out of my house. I lived in Friendship Heights and I walked out to Wisconsin Avenue, which was deserted, a total ghost town. Um, and I remember seeing the snow drift stacked against the cars, the streets completely devoid of any activity and just walking down the middle of Wisconsin Avenue with the snow blowing sideways, the snow drifts, you know, eight, nine feet high. And just thinking, I never may never see another scene like this in Washington for the rest of my life. So for me, that was the coolest weather experience that I've I've ever covered. Just be, and being able to witness it firsthand. You know, we cover weather all over the world, but seldom do I get to experience something extreme in my own backyard. And that and that was extreme, especially for this area. Woof, was it ever? Yeah, I think uh, there are weather moments that really stand out, and that is one of them. And you know, you actually got paid to go out in the snow and check it out. So that's even better, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The best job of all time. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Jason, this has been fantastic. I am going to close with our regular top of the stack feature. I feel like you already, even in the course of recording this, went through about nine resources or more that our listeners would be totally interested in. So maybe we can capture some of those as well. But is there is there some other good content that you'd want to recommend? Um, what's on the top of your proverbial stack? Yeah, it's a great question. I um, just recently encountered a um, a Substack or a newsletter um, about tropical weather, um, written by Michael Lowry. He is a um, broadcast meteorologist for I think it's WPLG down in um, Miami, and he previously worked in the National Hurricane Center. He's worked for FEMA. He worked at the Weather Channel, and he's a really good communicator and a great meteorologist. And he does an excellent daily um, column on tropical weather. And uh, it's called Eye on the Tropics. And um, if you Google Eye on the Tropics Substack, I'm sure you'll find it easily. And um, he just does a great job with the newsletter. And I, I read it each day. And we try to draw 
from some of it and cited in some of our tropical weather updates. He just started this about a month ago and he just does a great job with it. So I thought I'd give uh, folks a um, heads up about that. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, I guess in some ways he's competition to us because we also write about uh, tropical weather. But as I said, because he does such a great job and we cite it, um, definitely think it's worthwhile if you're interested in following what's going on with uh, tropical storms and hurricanes. And we're just uh, about a month away from the peak of hurricane season. So I imagine his audience will be growing as people come across that. And he's doing a great job. Great. Well, that's a great shout out. I'm actually going to do another host prerogative today. I very seldom throw in my own top of the stacks, but just today I have fallen in love with a new song that I'm also going to recommend to our listeners. And it is in fact called The Weather. It's by a band called Lawrence. And if you listen to the acoustic or gospel version, you will have a wonderful musical experience about the weather as well. So lots of great, great uh, follow-up opportunities from this podcast. And Jason, I just want to thank you again. It really has been a pleasure. I will be reading out there in the uh, in the Washington Post reader land. So thank you for all that you do. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.